Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. It's hour two, and you guys are, you have lots of your own questions this morning. I appreciate that. Keep texting me, 877-933-2484. Everybody is apparently up and at them already, for which I am grateful. Um, all right, so I'm going to cover uh, a, a few quick headlines before Paul Acey from Focus on the Families Plugged In joins us. And no, Lori, I do not have on the agenda uh, whatever the situation is with Dave Chappelle and Sage Steele. For the other person asking about Squid Game, yep, I'm going to lead off with that. There you go. All right, so here we go. Here are here's my quick run through of a few headlines. Maybe these this could supply some of your reading for the weekend. So, how would you test my religious sincerity, or how would I test your religious sincerity? Should the government be testing? religious sincerity at all? And if so, how should they be doing it? Well, that's actually the conversation that is ongoing right now, Uh, particularly in New York. There are thousands of workers awaiting responses back from a federal judge um, on religious exemptions. This is in relationship to vaccine mandates. Teachers were denied religious exemptions in many, many cases, and they lost their jobs. They're no longer on the job in New York, and now thousands of New York healthcare workers are in what is being described by the Wall Street Journal as limbo, um, as a federal judge considers whether or not the state's vaccination mandate must requ- must accommodate requests for religious exemptions at all, and on a case-by-case basis, how the state is going to judge the religious sincerity of those asking for exemptions. So we have talked about this in the past. I told you this was going to be a complicated mess and um, and it is. So employers, this is the way World Magazine is reporting it, employers are grappling with an unusually high number of religious um, objections, people asking to be exempted from vaccine mandates, uh, prevalence of a boilerplate objection form available online um, is now considered an insincere claim um, of uh, religious exemption. So I just, I'm, I, we tried to talk about this in a way that would sort of forecast this reality. Um, And so you have to really think about, like, what are my sincerely held beliefs? And if I want to request a religious exemption from something, how am I going to articulate that? And and so, you know, I want to encourage you, um, if if you are going to use a religious exemption, it needs to be legit. And so there you go. Um, I think there are legitimate religious exemptions. I just think people ought to be able to articulate that for themselves in a way that is honest to their uh, religious faith and religious expression. So not everybody's doing it that way. California, here's a story that is really, really troubling. California has now shortened the time, the waiting time um, for accessing assisted suicide. So Governor uh, Newsom in California signed a bill into law on Tuesday uh, the current or the waiting period used to be 15 days, it used to be a 15 day, basically a two week 
waiting period for a patient requesting the lethal drug uh, through which they would take their own life. So that is the pharmaceutically assisted suicide um, that's being provided. So here's how it happens. Physicians write the prescription and there's a 15 day waiting period before the prescription can be filled. And so that's what's going on here. Well, 15 days, you know, is a good cooling off period or a time to talk with family or consider other options. Um, That's been reduced to 48 hours, 48 hours. Uh, The law also requires healthcare providers uh, to post their physician-assisted suicide policies on their websites, which is another way of saying you can now advertise online. Uh, Other waiting periods in California, this might be um, instructive in terms of the way you're thinking about waiting periods. Um, There's a 10-day waiting period for the transfer of ownership of any gun in California. There's also no waiting period at all to access abortion. So zero is the amount of hours you have to wait to get an abortion. 48 hours is now how long you have to wait to uh, have a lethal prescription filled to take your own life. Uh, 10 days is how long you have to wait if you want to transfer the ownership of any firearm in California. All right, there's other things that we could talk about today, but let's get to our conversation with Paul Acey from Focus on the Families Plugged In because we all want to know what is Squid Game and who's playing it. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining me now, Paul Acey from Focus on the Families Plugged In. You can find much of what we're talking about today at PluggedIn.com, but maybe not the first thing, which is Squid Game. Paul, oh, welcome to Mornings goodness. with Carmen. I know. <laughs> okay, Squid Game. so Squid Game. Squid Game. Here are a few headlines that I am very quickly reading about Squid Game. According to The Guardian, Squid Game lays bare South Korea's real-life personal debt crisis. The New York Post says Squid Game star Ho Yun Young gains a whopping 15 million Instagram followers, and CNN is reporting Squid Game director Hong Dong-hook says this is a story about losers. What is Squid Game, and why is it leading the headlines today? Squid Game may be the biggest phenomenon on TV in the last several years. It is it is lining up to be the biggest show in Netflix's history, and that is really surprising for a, a show that's that's a South Korean product that is that is dubbed for an English audience. It's number one in something like ninety countries, uh, so it is a big deal. And essentially, it's about this. Game. It's it's about this this weird Hunger Games type of game, but it involves hundreds of people who are deeply, deeply in debt. They go to this secret island to play a series of kids' games. Squid Game is one of them. Uh, Red Light, Green Light is another. Tug of War. So a lot of, of games that we would be familiar with here in the States. Uh, but the thing is... If you win, you get closer to life-changing money. You get closer to becoming rich. If you lose, you die. And you die horribly. It is <laughs> okay. So no, just let's just pause. So okay, it, it's not then. It's not real. Like people aren't real. really doing this. 
no, no. People are not okay. really doing this. But okay, I feel a little better. Yeah, it's it's not a, a reality show, but it's presented as sort of a reality show. Only the, the viewers for this are just the rich and powerful. They sit around watching TV. It's not broadcast to the rest of South Korea, uh, but clearly there's an audience to watch people die from money. Um, and one of the most poignant parts about this is in the first episode, uh, they see the the contestants see what this is all about. They don't, they're not aware that they they could die. They're just taking this Island. Uh, they compete in this game. And then all of a sudden half of them are dead and they're all very shocked. They have a chance to end the game. They do but then most of them come back because the money is that important to them. They are willing to literally risk their lives uh, to 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 get out of debt. So that's that's essentially the plot of this show. Wow. All right. So Squid Game. Um, yeah, it's it's incredibly bloody. I think many people have said that it's it's might be the the bloodiest, most disturbing show on TV, but it's wildly, wildly popular. And you can see from the the context of the of the plot why people would be sucked in. Mm. All right. Um, let's talk about something else that a lot of people are probably going to see, and that is no time to die. Yes, No Time to Die, the latest James Bond movie. You know that they have made 25 of these, Carmen? Incredible. It's crazy I have not to seen, think. I can assure you I have not seen 25 James Bond movies. <laughs> I, I hate to confess. I, I remember have. one where there's like, there's like the skiing. I remember the that sh- one. There's like a <laughs> snow. There's like a lot of snow. They're skiing. They're on skis. He's escaping. It's completely irrational because there's like snowmobiles following him and he has apparently <laughs> evades them all. So I do remember that scene from a Bond movie. I, I remember that scene. Roger Moore, he jumps off a cliff. He skis right off a cliff, pulls a parachute. And what shows up? The Union Jack. It is one of the quintessential <laughs> okay, there James you go. Bond moments. So, so, what, is- so this, is not, this is not that guy. This is still James Bond, but not that guy, I'm guessing. And um, this is maybe the last one for this guy. You are absolutely right on both points. This is this is Daniel Craig as James Bond. This is his fifth time as as the super spy. It's his last turn in the series. The, he he famously quoted after his fourth movie, Spectre, that he would never ever ever do Bond again. Um, but you know, money has a way of talking, and and after a while, he uh, he came back. This movie has been in the hopper for four or five years uh, because of injuries on the set. A director changed over, and then of course because of COVID, it was delayed for a long time. So this movie, there's a lot of built up, pent up uh, desire to see a new James Bond movie. It mm. for Bond fans, it is worth the wait. For parents leery of this franchise, maybe not so much. All right. When we come back, I'm going to ask you to um, to share with us about Guilty. That's up next with Paul AC from Focus on the Families Plugged In. We'll be right back. So if you sat down in a movie theater and the title card at the beginning of the film quoted John 8, 32, and the truth shall make you free, uh, you might um, you might be drawn in. Paul AC from Focus on the Family's Plugged In is going to tell us now about a movie called The Guilty.
the guilty. Yes, this is another Netflix Flix production. After after you're uh, done looking at Squid to see if you wanted to watch that, if you wanted to see the Squid Game, uh, you can always flip over to Guilty, which is uh, Jake Gyllenhaal is is uh, plays this uh, this police officer who got demoted. He did something terrible on his beat. Uh, we never exactly hear what, but he works as now as a nine one one dispatcher. But he feels like his his calling is not being met. He really wants to get back out on the on the streets, do what he thinks is good. Um, and so because of that, it makes him a really terrible 911 dispatcher in a lot of ways. He <laughs> winds up going going kind of rogue. Uh, he, he, he gets this call from a woman who's been abducted and he puts it on himself to save her. Um, the story then goes from there, and he realizes during the course of the story, he makes tons and tons of mistakes, of course, but he also realizes that lots of people have been lying to him along the way. Um, and so it becomes almost not only a quest for this missing woman, but uh, a quest for what he really needs to be doing. The truth does eventually set him free, but it's not its not without some some pretty difficult moments in between. Um, all right. So I think that many of these that we're talking about this week are not ones that we would uh, that we would recommend. Maybe talk with us about the mass or just maybe it's just called mass. Sorry. It is it's just it mass. Is just There's no mass. the mass. Yeah. Mass. Yeah. <laughs> Mass is very fast. And, and again, like you say, I mean, I think the, the closest one that we would come to for a family audience might be, believe it or not, No Time to Die. That has it is very much a James Bond movie through and through. Uh, but Mass is also rated PG-13. It is coming to some big, big uh, markets this weekend. Uh, it will be opening up a little bit wider next weekend. And it's essentially the story of the parents of the victim of a mass school shooting who sit down in a church basement with the parents of the killer. It is incredibly gripping and very, very hard to watch. In, unlike a lot of the stuff that we've talked about, where, you know, obviously you see a lot of content on screen. You see tons of violence in James Bond. You see some lots of blood in Squid Game. Here, it is just the quiet story of four people in conversation. And yet, it may be the most devastating movie on the docket because the the emotions are so raw. The conversation is so honest. Um, it becomes this this deeply difficult conversation, as you can imagine, that that ends up in kind of this space of healing, at least for some of the families. Um, it's it's a very difficult movie to watch, um, but it's incredibly well acted. Uh, mass obviously has a dual meaning. It talks about the mass shooting, but it also talks about this sense of community and this sense of almost spiritual gathering. Um, it takes a, an interesting spiritual twist at the end that, that I don't want to spoil, but it's it is really compelling. I think it'll probably end up on my top 10 list for the year. Um, I really can't say that I enjoyed it because it's a difficult movie, but man, is it powerful. Well, and it's getting um, it's getting surprisingly good reviews for a film that is a conversation between four people. And mm -hmm. I and, and so I do think there is a um, it's worthy to note when culture places value 
on something as historically simple as conversation because today it's so rare. And so I do think, um, you know, like that's that's just worthy. Um, that's worthy to consider. How about um, social media is not our friend? This is a uh, this is a blog post. Um, and let's talk a little bit about social media. Social media. I tell you what, one of the things that that we've been hearing a lot about uh, in the news is Facebook and Instagram. There was a huge bombshell report that that the Wall Street Journal did a few weeks ago uh, that that sort of talked about how some of the internal documents, Facebook's in, in, internal documents, and the, and the blog which I wrote is really predicated on one of those things, which is that that. We have all known, like researchers have known for a long time, that Instagram can be very, very harmful to teens who look at them. They can it can give them a bad self worth. It can it can lead them to compare themselves to others. It can feed into mental health issues big time. Experts have known this for a long time. Uh, Facebook and Instagram have long publicly sort of sort of diminished that that concern. Uh, but then this this report shows that their own internal research found that a third of teen girls were harmed by Instagram. I mean, literally harmed mentally by Instagram. Um, Did it change their policies? It doesn't seem so. Uh, But I think it just goes, it it hits home that point that that when we are dealing with these, these huge, huge, massive organizations, that are that are trying to service, and in many ways they do. I don't want to minimize the the good connections that can be made through social networks, but there are other things going on besides just trying to to help us connect with our friends and family. They are a business, and because they are a business, they are looking out for their own self interests first. Um, that is something that as users and as parents of teens who are using these things, we need to be super, super aware of. We have to know and be very cognizant that there are other agendas in play and, and know that some of these things can be harmful to our kids. Paul, it's all um, so very helpful. We want to encourage you guys to check out what's going on at PluggedIn.com. You can read uh, Paul's blog there on um social media not being our friend. You can also read lots of movie reviews, see what's happening not only on the big screen, but on small screens where increasingly um, we we access all kinds of media and social media. So, Paul, as always, thank you so much for joining us and, you know, and, and for jumping on um, my opening question, which wasn't even on our docket, you know, right? And actually knowing what Squid Game was, because that was a total mystery to me. So thanks, man. <laughs> No problem. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much, Carmen. Always a pleasure. That's Paul Acey. You can find him at Focus on the Families, PluggedIn.com. We'll be right back. Do you have questions about the Bible? Are you asked questions about the Bible? How do you answer them? How do you know that your answers, you know, line up with what other Christians think? Like, how are you testing your answers to the important questions that you and others are asking about the Bible. Michael Reitelnick um, from Moody is going to join us to talk about the 50 most, or 50 of the most, depending how you think about it, uh, 50 most important Bible questions, including everything from like, why does God allow bad things to happen, to did Noah really fit all the animals of the earth on a boat? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is Max Lucado. 
The book of Esther relates the story of a Persian king, Xerxes, who was 35 years of age and rich beyond imagination. He staged a six-month extravaganza of fine food, who's who, Pinot Noir, and excess. A bit tipsy, Xerxes decided to show off his wife, Queen Vashti. Apparently, he expected her to dance in front of his buddies, but boy, was he in for a surprise. She refused to comply. Xerxes' display of importance became his display of ignorance. What if all the glips and glamour are only folly and foibles? And what if the lure of the lights is just a hoax? Friend, don't romp in it. Don't fall for it. Don't take the bait. Don't get cozy in Persia. Stay faithful to your call as a covenant people. This is Max Lucado. This is amazing grace. This is love. Well, it's a joy to welcome Dr. Michael um, Rydelnik. He is a professor of Jewish studies at Moody Bible Institute. He is also the host and the Bible teacher on Open Line, where he answers listeners' Bible questions for two hours every Saturday morning. He is the son of Holocaust survivors, raised in an observant Jewish home in Brooklyn, New York. Um, He is a Christian. He has served as a pastor. Um, He has served at Moody Bible um, as a professor. Um, and he's and he's answered a lot of questions over time um, and across generations. And it's a privilege to welcome him here today to talk about his new book, 50 Most Important Bible Questions. Dr. Rydelnik, thank you for joining us on Mornings with Carmen. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. All right. So let's talk about the kinds of questions and the context in which you have heard questions over time, because I think that's really uh, sort of the foundation of this conversation. Yeah, you know, I started when, when I became a pastor back in 1983 of all the years. That's almost 40 years ago. Uh, I noticed that uh, that my congregation had all these Bible questions. And uh, so they were always looking for that. So what I would do is between series, I would always, you know, I teach a series from the Old Testament, and then I would day, take a day, there'd be no sermon, just Bible questions or any kind of questions, theology, spiritual life questions, didn't matter. And uh, of course, I didn't always know the answers, but I knew where to find them. And so uh, I did my best to answer questions. And I did that for years and years and years as a pastor. And then when Moody Radio uh, needed someone to kind of pick up the torch for, I don't know if you've ever heard of Don Cole, but he answered Bible questions forever on a program called Open Line. And uh, then after he was retired and the program was off the air, they said, you know what, we need to bring this back. I, I got the opportunity to answer questions again. And I guess what happens is you start seeing patterns of the questions that people find important. And so this book is completely arbitrary. I, I chose which questions <laughs> I think. No, are I like that. I like uh, that about it. Yeah. So, and, and some questions I don't think are all that crucial to our lives but they're so common, I think it's important to answer them. Like the question about who are the sons of God, the daughters of men, and the Nephilim in Genesis 6. That's probably the number one question I get, even though I don't think it'll change your life. And then uh, uh, the uh, there are other questions that I think should be asked more frequently. They get asked occasionally, 
and I included those. And then there's a, a lot of practical questions. People often fear uh, their own security. Uh, they fear they're going to be kicked out of the family of God for stepping out of line. So I included several questions about our security in the Savior. And so those are the kinds of questions. That's how it came up. It's, I'm really trying to hear what people are asking me and, uh, and answer those questions. And provoke us to ask and seek answers to questions that we might not be asking, but that are really, really important. I mean, I, I'm very aware that that's going on in this book as well. Yeah, um, that's so it. here, so here's a question for you. <clears throat> Did God really say? That would be my Bible question, right? Because Did I think God that's really the question. Oh, Did God oh, really God- say? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That is a pretty common question. Uh, like one of the questions I get frequently, did God really teach or require a woman to marry her rapist in the book of Deuteronomy? Uh, and I hear that one quite a bit. People people say, how could you believe the Bible? That's what the Bible says. And uh, so I included that question, uh, which does not, it does appear to me, that there was a protection for a woman going on when she engaged in uh, consensual premarital relations with a man, uh, then uh, the man couldn't just toss her aside. He had to marry her. And so uh, to protect the woman, that's what was included in there. And and yet most versions don't capture that nuance, uh, but, but some great Old Testament scholars have. Uh, and uh, I agree with them that that that's what is being required. And yet people misrepresent what the Bible actually says very often, uh, easily. You know, it's not like there's a meanness to it. They, they, they're looking at the passage. They think that's what it's saying. Uh, and so did God really say that? Nope, he didn't. So. Right. Well, and so, okay, so you used the term versions, and we have a person on the text line asking the question, um, what about uh, textual criticism or KJV onlyism? Okay, so you address that. You address yeah. the conversation about versions of the Bible. Um, you want to dig into that? Sure, sure. You know, uh, of course, there's there's a spectrum of Bible translations. Uh, there's the word for word kind, like the New American Standard version. There are thought for thought kinds, like the New Living translation, which is the most, I would say, thought-for-thought uh, thought concept. It's not word-for-word word at all. And then there are versions that try to balance that out with being as literal as they can be, but also catching the nuance in a different language. And and so uh, on that spectrum, there's the Holman CSB uh, that's trying to balance it out. Uh, then there's the NIV, which goes more to, towards thought-for-thought. In the the ESV is there, so th- those are the kind of translations there are. Uh, the New King James version is a very good translation, but the issue with the New King James is really more of a New Testament issue than an Old Testament issue. Uh, the, the New King James version and the Old King James is based on Erasmus's Greek text from the 16th century. And or late fifteenth century, it's it's, and since then we have discovered so much more about what the original text of the New Testament is, and so I would prefer one of the modern translations, like an ESV, uh, 
or or NASB or Holman CSB, one of those versions, because they're based on the most accurate original Greek text uh, that we can find. And, you know, the King James Version people, sometimes they think it's that Greek text by Erasmus was the best. It wasn't. Uh, sometimes they think that Shakespearean language makes it more holy. That's not true. The Bible is written in everyday language. Uh, so, you know, th there's all these reasons that people, and, then, and if someone thinks I can only read the King James, God bless you, read it. But uh, that's not what I would make the, my, my favorite translation. All right. When we come back, Dr. Michael Rydelnik and I are going to continue our conversation about 50 Most Important Bible Questions. That's the new book. For those of you interested in doing so, we've got copies to give away today, so you can enter that drawing by texting the word BOOK to 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. We're talking with Dr. Michael Rydelnik. Um, you can find him each and every week um, on a radio program called Open Line. Um, and you can also find much of what he has written and is thinking about um, online. And the book we're talking about today is 50 Most Important Bible Questions. And yes, we're giving copies away. So if you're interested in entering the drawing for those, just text the word book to 877-933-2484. Um, all right. So let me ask this question. The Bible is full of mysteries, no errors. Um, sometimes it seems to contradict itself. So how do you kind of address that constellation of questions? Well, there's no question that there are mysteries. Sometimes they're called by people like J.I. Packer, Ken Boa, uh, different writers have called something an antinomy. An antinomy is uh, an apparent contradiction, but not genuinely a contradiction. It just seems that way to our finite minds that in Isaiah 55, it says that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so far are my thoughts higher than your thoughts, my ways higher than your ways. Uh, God can understand some things that we can't. And there's some basic ideas that we believe that are apparent contradictions, like God being both three and one. He is three and one, the triunity of God. You know, the question starts by saying, can you give a simple explanation of the Trinity? And my answer starts with, I wish I could. There is no simple explanation. I believe it, but and I, I go through what the Bible says. The Bible reveals that God is three in one, but it doesn't explain how it can be so. So with that said, uh, you know, we can use illustrations, but they all fail ultimately. And we just have to trust that God in his infinite wisdom knows how he can be three in one. And we may never grasp it. Uh, another example is the whole issue of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. God is indeed sovereign over everything, and yet we are not robots. He doesn't make us choose Gleam. I don't even know if that exists anymore. Crest or Colgate, toothpaste. You know, he's not yeah. determining. And, and so we have uh, certain human responsibilities before God. We're held accountable before God. Uh, I believe the Bible teaches both divine sovereignty, human responsibility, and often in the same paragraph. That's what's so amazing about it. Uh, the scriptures teach both, and 
in a very famous passage about the crucifixion in Acts 4, 27 and 28. It says, uh, they were gathered together in this city against your holy servant, Jesus Pontius, Pilate, Herod, the people of Israel, and the Gentiles. And so there's this conspiracy of guilt in the in the crucifixion of Jesus. And then it says to do whatever your hand and what your purpose predestined to occur. So God is the one who predestined that whole thing. How can there be human responsibility and divine sovereignty? Well, it's an antinomy, but I believe it's true. And it's uh, one of those mysteries. So uh, I try and delve into that. I don't think I have great answers to a mystery because it's a mystery, but I do lay out where the scriptures are that teach those things are uh, where they're included in scripture. That's so good. That's so good. Okay. So um, I want to ask you uh, a personal question. Um, Who, who is Larry Feldman? (laughs) My friend who I dedicated the book to. (laughs) Well, I know, but you know, the, the, the inquiring mind wants to know more because you say that Larry Feldman read the Bible every day, um, has read the Bible every day since 1972. And it yeah. provokes this question and curiosity. Why would yes. a person read the Bible every day? Okay. Larry and I are great friends. He leads a Messianic congregation in Irvine, California. Uh, he is, uh, we, he and I went to seminary together. Uh, we're just really close friends. Uh, next to my wife, I say Larry's my closest friend. But anyway, what happened was on January 15th, 1972, he became a follower of Jesus. He's obviously a Jewish guy, just out of college, became a believer in Jesus. And then about two days later, uh, he was asking someone, how could I hear from God? How will God lead me in my life? And they said, well, God's word, the Bible is how God speaks to us. He will reveal everything you need to know from Scripture. And so Larry thought, if God spoke to me in the Bible, I'm going to read it. And he made the commitment that he would read the Bible every day. And so since about January 17th or 18th, he has not missed a day of reading Scripture. And even when he's traveling overseas, he says, uh, you know, one day he was laying down in the bed and then realized that the day had passed and he had missed. And he said, oh, I can't miss this day. So he just jumped up and he read a chapter of the Bible and went back to bed. (laughs) So he is as committed. I I joke about him being obsessive compulsive, but I I just am awed by his commitment. He spends time every day in besides his preaching and preparation that he does for preaching. uh, He spends every day, usually about an hour uh, in the word in the morning and he gets through the Bible about three times a year, besides the deep research he does for his messages that he prepares. And so he's kind of a role model for me, someone that I really respect for his commitment to God's Word. So I love that you um, you know, have such a friend. First of all, I want to celebrate that. Um, mm-hmm. I also want to celebrate that you have, that you refer to him as a role model or mentor, because I think sometimes people would imagine that someone— um, you know, with with your um, with your learnings, right? With all of your uh, with all of your fancy titles and degrees and opportunities, right? <laughs> You're the guy that people look to, but you still have a person in your life um, who is discipling at some level you as well. And so, I just wanted to highlight that because I think that's very precious. You also, well, yes. okay, go ahead. 
I was just going to say, we, we have this very mutual relationship. You know, he, uh, I, I love it that Larry is a, a great role model for me. I think he is. But I, I, I don't think if you ask Larry if he was discipling me, he would say, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, I get that. I get that. I totally understand that. Um, one of the things, though, that you say about him, and I suspect this is true of you as well, there is a difference between reading the Bible devotionally, maybe I will use that term, and studying the Bible or doing the kind of research that you're talking about, which is required for the production of, let's say, a lesson. Mm-hmm. Sure. Can you talk about that? Uh, yeah. You know, I, sometimes uh, I think one of the things that, that I try and really emphasize in my classes is to read the Bible holistically. Uh, mm. that, that the only way to understand a paragraph is to have a big overview of the particular book you're reading or even the Testament or the whole Bible. So I really encourage people to read through the Bible at least once a year. I think that that gives you that holistic perspective. But if that's all we're doing, we're never going to really get down in depth. And there's that whole issue of deep reading with a notebook open, making observations. uh, And then as you make those observations, asking questions of the text, what does, why is this phrase repeated? What's the significance of this word? Uh, Writing those questions down and then digging deep to get the answers to those questions. And then uh, as, and that might involve uh, using a concordance, using a commentary, uh, using uh, a variety of biblical tools, a Bible dictionary to get the answers to your questions. And then pretty soon you have a deeper knowledge of that smaller paragraph that you're looking at. All right. It's so good. Um, thank you so very much for the book, 50 Most Important Bible Questions. Um, we do have copies of Dr. Michael Rydelnick's, uh, Rydel, Rydelnick, Rydelnick, sorry. Yeah, I know, Rydelnick. Um, hey, hey, so uh, this is what they said. They said people like the radio program, Open Line. They just can't say my name. So people call me <laughs> Dr. Michael on the radio. That's fine. Dr. Michael. <laughs> Dr. Michael, thank you so much. We do have copies of the book to give away if you'd like to enter the drawing for the copies of 50 most important Bible questions we're giving away today. Go ahead and text the word book to 877-933-2484. And you can check out uh, the the program. Um, Talk with us about, um, is it a call-in show? Yeah, it's a call-in show. People call from all over the country. I love that. They have questions about the Bible and God and the spiritual life. And it's on Saturday mornings, 9 to 11 Central Time. And it's that. on the Moody, you can get it on the Moody Radio app or the podcast if it's not on your station. And uh, maybe it's on your local station as well. Very cool. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Michael, for not making me say Rydelnik <laughs> too many times. I know. <laughs> I'll, I'll did, figure it you out. Did well. Thank Good. you. Thank you so what much. What a joy. Absolutely. We'll be right back. All right. Um, just loving you today. Thanks for all the engagement on the text line. Um, yes, I, I agree with you. Um, those of you who are saying, wow, I think he was so spot on. It was so encouraging to just hear someone talk so freely about the importance of reading the scriptures and how we read them and how we engage. So I guess I'll end where we often begin, which is this. Where in the word are you today? And if you haven't yet been into the word of God, get in there right? In order that the Word of God might get into us, that we might be thoroughly possessed of 
uh, of the things of Christ as we walk as his ambassadors out into the world that he so loves. I mean, I want to do so. I want to walk out into the world that God so loves in ways that honor Jesus. And in order to do that, I need to be not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of my mind. And how does that happen? Well, that only happens by my moment-by-moment willingness to submit to the active work of the Holy Spirit and to know what God has said about things and God's character in relationship to the events of the world and life. And how do I learn all of that? How do I know about who God is and what God thinks about things and how God would respond and have me respond? Well, I got to be in the Word of God. I got to be in the Bible in order to access all that. So let's get in there. Have a great weekend. God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.